Hello. It's great to see everybody at my welcome to you and my congratulations at getting here in the weather. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors. I'm one of the elders here. And it's just fun to be able to gather together and open the scriptures together. Many of you know that before I was a pastor, I was a product manager for Oracle Corporation. And you may know about product management. This is a field that tries to help figure out how to design products well so that they meet the needs of the people they're designed for. Um, and so one of the trends right now is called human-centered design. You may have heard about this. And this is just the idea that when you design something, you want to focus on the needs of the people that you're designing it for. Understand what they need and design a product to meet those needs. So um, I got the chance to go to the men's retreat this last couple days, and I actually had the chance to play bass at the men's retreat, which I haven't done in um, a minute or two. And uh, it was really fun to do that, but so I, as playing bass, I had to print out all of our music. And so I had these pages of music that I wanted to keep together, but I didn't want to staple them because I needed to spread them out when I was playing them on the music stand. So I thought, is there a product that exists that can help me to hold paper together temporarily, but easily pull them apart again? And I discovered that somebody has created this great thing. It's called the paper clip. <laughs> and it, it exactly met my needs. This is an advertisement from 1893. Paperclip, only satisfactory device for temporary attachment of all kinds of papers. It's better than pins or clamps. It doesn't mutilate your papers, and it's quickly applied and removed. Now, the paperclip is an example of what I would consider perfect human-centered design. This product has not changed in over 100 years because it does exactly what you want it to do, nothing more. Uh, you don't need to connect it to Wi-Fi. Um, <laughs> You don't need to speak to it. The battery doesn't run out. It is a perfectly designed product to meet a need in the world. Now, at the men's retreat, also, um, you know, I got thirsty, and so I took a bottle of water, and I had some water from my water bottle. But we might think about this as a different kind of product. Because, see, bottled water was actually a very niche product for a long time until around 1977, when a company called Perrier spent a ton of money to convince people that water in a bottle tasted better than water that came from your tap. And they were so successful that now, decades later, bottled water is a $300 billion industry. It's one of the fastest growing industries in the world. What's the number, five million? Five million, no, sorry, one million bottles of water are sold every minute. So while you listen to the sermon, there'll be about 100 million bottles of water. I'm just kidding. I was going to scare you with the math. Only about 35 million. Don't worry. So this kind of product is different, though, because this product, you know, water from a tap is fine. So this is the type of product that exists, and then you need to figure out how do you convince people that there's a need for it? How do you manufacture a problem that this is the solution for? So the question we have for us this morning is which one, 
The only problem with paper clips is they get lost, but here we go. It's right here. The question we're going to have this morning is, which one are we more like? What about humanity? Are we more like paper clips designed perfectly to meet a need, or are we like bottled water? We're just kind of here, and we have to figure out what the need is in the world that we're made for. We have to manufacture a purpose for ourselves to feel better. We're continuing this morning in our series in the book of Genesis, where we're going back to the beginning of the story to answer some of these fundamental questions about the nature of the world, the nature of humanity, and who God is. As we've been doing this, two weeks ago we heard about how God created humanity in his image, that there's something about who we are as people that corresponds to who God is. We bear his image. Last week, we heard about how rest is an integral part of what it means to be human, these cycles of work and rest. And this morning, we're going to pick up with Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 17, and we're going to look at what is really a second version of the creation story, detailing creation from a different perspective. And we're going to see how people are created with a certain purpose in the world. That in fact, we are, humanity is, a perfect example of human-centered design. Now, we're going to go old school with our kind of sermon structure this morning. I've got three points, and they all start with a P. So it's really easy to remember. We're going to talk about the purpose of humanity. We're going to talk about the potential of humanity. And we're going to talk about God's provision for humanity. And then there's actually an intro verse that uh, we're going to look at first, and you might think of that as the preamble. See what I did there? All right, good. So three points, purpose, provision, uh, purpose, potential, provision, and we're going to see how it is that God created us. My prayer for us this morning as we look at this is that we would have this deep sense of understanding how we're connected to the world that we live in that we are not just accidentally thrown into here, that we don't have to discover some purpose for being, but that God created us so that every minute of our days, we are connected to his purposes through us in the world. And because of Jesus within us, we have this incredible opportunity to live as agents of redemption in God's creation. Let's begin with uh, Genesis 2. This is Genesis 2. We're going to read verse 4. And this is kind of a summary verse for the passage that we're looking at. It reads this way. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This word translated generations is the Hebrew word pronounced toledot. And it's a word that is used 10 times throughout the book of Genesis to introduce different sections of the book. The other nine times all refer to families. So the Toledot of Abraham and Noah and Jacob. And we hear about the generations that flow from individuals. But this time, it's the Toledot of the heavens and the earth. We are cosmic in scope. We're talking about the very nature of the universe that we live in. And we're learning something about how all of us as the generations that flow forth from 
God's creation were meant to be. The story picks up then in verses 5 and 6. And this, as I said, version of creation is a little bit different because instead of starting with everything God made, the first thing we hear about this creation is that something is missing. Listen to verses 5 and 6. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, there's two words in Hebrew that are words of negation, words like our English words not and no. Both of those words show up for the first time in the entire Bible in this verse where we read that, there, that God had not caused it to rain and there was no man to work the ground. So in Genesis 1, when we read that version of the creation story, it emphasized how God had created a system full of abundance. For an agricultural people, God had created a cosmos with everything they needed to make life work. The sun, rain, Stars, plants, seeds, animals, livestock, fish, bird, everything in their system of life was there for them because God gave them abundantly. But this time, as we take a different angle looking at the creation story, we begin with the fact that something was missing. And in fact, the things that are missing are critical components to make life work in an agricultural system. There's no rain and there's no farmer. How can you make life work? So this is the problem then that God goes about to solve. This is what he fixes by creating. Listen to how it plays out in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed into the man, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was a problem. There was no man to work the ground. So God entered into the situation and he created mankind to solve the problem that existed. Notice too that God used part of the problem to create the solution. The ground needed someone to work it, so God took dust from the ground and formed it into a man who would then work the ground itself. It would be like creating a paperclip out of paper. Also, we notice that the word for ground is Adama in Hebrew, and the man is called Adam. So there's this integral connection between the human who was created and the purpose that he was put on this planet to solve. We read a little more details about this when we jump ahead and we look at verse 15, where God says this, the Lord God took the man 
and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Once again, very clear problem and solution. There was no man to work the ground. God took the man and put him in the garden to work it. So if you ever wonder, biblically, what is the purpose of humanity? It's very clear. God had created a garden without a gardener. He created a canvas without an artist, a computer without a programmer, a hospital without a doctor, a playground without a child. Name your metaphor. God had created something that needed to be worked without the human who was capable of working it. And so then God created humankind to fill that gap. Now, the words used here are really significant, though. We are told that God created humankind to work the garden and keep the garden. And these words are uh, rich with meaning. Work is the kind of word you use when you're creating something, when you're, when you're when you're bringing up fruit from the ground, when you're innovating, when you're designing, when you're bringing new stuff to life in the world. Keep is the kind of word you use when you're building a fence around the garden to keep the varmints out, when you're protecting people, when you're establishing boundaries, when you're um, enforcing the law, when you're doing digital security, when you're trying to heal patients of a disease, protective type work. And if you think about the kinds of things that you do with your time every day, day in, day out, whether you're uh, working professionally, whether you're raising children, whether you're retired, whether you're in school, if you think about how you spend your time, I'd be willing to bet that you could put most of your time into one of those two buckets. You're either working, you're either trying to help something good to happen or you're keeping, you're trying to protect something bad from happening. You're trying to keep out the things that you don't want to happen. And so humankind is put on this earth with this responsibility to create and innovate and bring forth new life, but also to protect and divide and make sure that things happen in the way that they ought. To work the ground and to keep the garden. But the other really cool thing about these words is that most of the time in the Old Testament, they were used to refer to priests who were fulfilling their work in the temple of God. And so priests work in the temple to do the service of worshiping God. Last week, we heard Dan describe how the whole creation, in some sense, was described as a temple in which God would live. And so now we have this humanity created as priests to serve in the temple by doing the work that needs to be done. If you think about Adam, a very first human, he's working the ground, but what he's doing is he's caring for the temple of God's creation. And by doing that work, He's bringing glory to God. He's worshiping God with his efforts, with his time, with his creativity. The same is true for you. Do you know that you are priests of God in this world? That 
Everything that exists is part of God's temple where he dwells. And the work that you do to work it and to keep it is you worshiping God through your efforts. Whatever that might be, God has given you this sense that your time, your energy, your thought, your skills, your education, your background, your, all of you is meant to worship him through your work. That's why the Apostle Paul can say this in Colossians 3, 23. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. He's not saying pretend that God is your boss because if you pretend and if you think that way, then you might have a better attitude at work. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, do you understand that everything you do, every minute you spend, every ounce of energy you put towards something in this world could be done as a way to worship God by serving as a priest in his temple? Martin Luther was the first theologian to use the word vocation to refer to something other than working for the church. In his day, in the 16th century, you had two choices as a person growing up. You could either follow in the footsteps of your family and do the family trade and do kind of a normal job, or you could get a vocation and you could be a priest or a nun or a monk or some type of professional Christian. Those were the options. And Martin Luther came to this story and said, aren't all jobs ways to serve God? Shouldn't we call everything we do a vocation? Can't you be called as a baker and as a plumber and as a farmer, just as much as a priest or a nun or a monk? We inherit that usage of the word today, that we think about all that we do as vocations, which comes from the word to be called by God into a role for his glory to serve his purposes. This is what it looks like to be humanity. This is the purpose that God has put us on the earth, that we fill some lack, we solve some problem. And this is true on a large scale, but it's also true for us individually. That as we discern what it is that God has created us to do, we see a problem in the world that we were made to address. And as we do that, we bring glory to him. The purpose of humankind. The next verses, as we keep reading, are a little bit confusing. They're one of the ways we, we kind of read these and go, what is really going on here? We, we hear about these rivers, and we don't really understand why they're here. So let's look at them and see if we can figure this out. This is Genesis 2. I'll read verses 10 to 14. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, this description of the geography of Eden is really interesting. People think maybe this was given so that we could find Eden, but that's never happened. And so we have to ask, what is the purpose 
of these four rivers. Now, it doesn't really resonate with us, but for an ancient reader, this description of Eden would remind them of something. Because in the ancient world, there was this notion that a god would live in his temple, and outside his temple, there would be a garden, an oasis, where good things would come. Uh, Archaeologists have discovered images of this from the 10th century, and there's particularly this really interesting image that was from the 13th century BC, displaying an Assyrian god in a temple full of trees with four rivers coming out of it. You notice the god at the top of this temple, Notice all the trees that fill the garden and four rivers emerging from one river in this garden. So the picture that probably would have made sense for Eden is that there would have been a temple, imagine almost like an English um, estate with gardens in the back so that the river came out of the temple, watered the gardens, and then split into four rivers to go in the four directions of the earth. Okay, well, now I have a little better picture about what might be going on, but what does this mean? What are we supposed to learn from this description of the Garden of Eden? And I think it has to do with this, that if you imagine humankind put in the garden to work it and keep it, and they were told earlier on in Genesis 1 that they ought to um, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, you would imagine that this garden is not going to be enough to contain the people as they multiplied. And so within this garden, within this system that God built, is structured the potential for more. The Tigris and the Euphrates were two of the major rivers in the Middle East. They served the whole land of Assyria and Persia and and Palestine. They were all connected. We hear about one river that leads to gold, which is a source of wealth. It's a source of trade, of currency. Another river that leads to Cush, which is Egypt, another major civilization. And so it's as if in this garden are the raw materials necessary for humankind eventually to develop an economy, to trade, currency, to grow and to expand and to flourish with multiple cultures, multiple products, multiple places around the world. It would be the equivalent of taking a 10-year-old and sitting him or her down and dumping out a bucket of Legos and saying, do whatever comes natural. That child would start to assemble. They would take these raw materials and they would create new things. And each child you did that with would create something different because of the nature of their creativity. See, God created a system full of potential that humans can come into and unlock to create new things, to develop and grow and expand. And so we might think for ourselves, how is it that we do that in the ways that we spend our time? How is it that we come into a situation, see some kind of potential there, and because of God working through us, we are able to unlock that? What potential do you unleash? You might remember in the first chapter of Genesis, the way God is described as having created things is by repeatedly saying, let there be light. Let the ground sprout vegetation. Let these things happen. 
It's almost as if the earth, the creation, the cosmos has this budding energy within it that wants to come out. And God is speaking, saying, release, let light come forth, let life come forth. And then as we come into the picture, we are given that same kind of call where we come into a world and we notice the potential in our children that we're raising. We notice the potential in the team that we manage. We notice the potential in the students that we teach or the material that we're learning or the neighborhood that we live in or whatever it is where God has placed you. You see how with your effort, you're not going to build something from zero. You're not going to make something happen. It's not up to you to carry the burden of that, but you step into it and you let something good come forth through your careful effort. It's such an incredible picture that God gives us the privilege of working in his world in that way. How we spend our time is entering into the world to unlock the potential that God has buried in the cosmos. So we've looked at the purpose of humankind, how we were created because God had a garden without a gardener. We've talked about the potential of humankind, how we were created with this innate desire to create and unlock and develop new things. As the story continues, we will notice how God provides for humankind so that they can accomplish his purposes. We're going to go back and read again verse 16 and then continue on to 17. We'll read, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We should probably think of the garden as an orchard. We hear mostly of the trees in the garden. And so it's this huge area full of trees. And what we hear God saying is that Every tree is given to you for food. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Think about all the trees. Apple trees, orange trees, pear trees, apricots, dates, plums, peaches, nectarines, lemons, kumquats, persimmons, pomegranates. I could go on and on. Every tree is given to humanity to provide for them. This is an abundant provision with incredible variety and diversity, and it's all given to humankind. Not only that, in the midst of the garden is the tree of life, some unique special tree that has the potential to, to carry on life continually, it seems. Even that is given to humankind to enjoy. Here's the twist, though. Every good thing needs boundaries. Good things exist because they are marked off from things that are not good. And so we know what light is because there is darkness. We know what good is because there is evil. We know what a ripe fruit tastes like because we've had fruit that's not ripe. And so God, in his provision for humankind, marks off a boundary. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to do a little pop quiz. You guys ready for that? Are you awake enough? Okay, I think you'll do great. Ready? What do you see in this picture? 
A square, right? It's not a trick question. <laughs> a square, great. You guys are doing good. Let's keep it going. Okay, what do you see next? A circle. Okay, you guys came prepared. All right, last one. This is the trickiest one. You ready? What do you see now? Triangle. All right, you guys are good. Kindergarten has been passed. All right, here's the real hard one. You ready? What do you see now? Isn't the square still there? Isn't the circle still there? Isn't the triangle still there? The stuff that makes up the square is still there. It's the same stuff. But without the boundary, you don't see it. But most of the square, 99% of the square is still in the picture. Same with the circle. In the same way, when God provides abundantly for us, he marks off a boundary to say, this is the abundance of my provision but it only makes sense because of how it's marked off. And so God says very clearly, do not eat from this tree. For in this tree, if you eat from it, you will die. Here's the source of my provision, a huge open space in the middle of the square with every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. That's the source of life. But outside the boundary, you'll be cut off from the source of life. Outside, there is death. In here is dependence. It's trust. It's the provision of God. It's every good thing in the universe. And yet there is an outside. Independence. Striking out on your own. Autonomy. Doing it your way. Determining what is good and evil by your boundaries rather than by the boundaries God has set. And so as God gives us purpose, he, he puts us on this planet to solve a problem. As he invites us to unlock the potential of the world, he provides abundantly for us to do so, but built into that provision is a sense of boundary to make sure that we do so in a way that, that stays consistent with how he designed the world to operate. So we might think for ourselves then, what are the boundaries then that, that we're particularly aware of in our lives? What are the boundaries that God may have put around us to protect us, to focus our energy, to provide for us that we may not experience as good because all we can see is what's on the other side? What are your boundaries for me, I think when I was younger, I was, I was keenly aware of the moral boundaries that God had given me. It seemed that there were things I wanted to do that I knew I shouldn't do because God said those things would not lead to life. And I was frustrated by those things and tempted by them and I wanted to do them. And while those things are still true to some extent today, I'm very aware of other kinds of boundaries in my life, physical boundaries, boundaries of energy, boundaries of emotional health, boundaries of calling. And it's really easy to see boundaries as a limitation, as something that, 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 that prevents me from doing something outside of it, rather than seeing that boundary as something that creates a space within which I can experience the abundant provision of God to fulfill his calling on me. And so we might 
try to think about those boundaries, those things that you wish weren't there. You wish you could do more. You wish you could do this. You wish you had more time or more energy or more education or more this and whatever the boundaries are that you feel are limitations, understanding that those are actually God's way of providing for you. So what we've seen here is this incredible system that God has created. There's a problem and he created mankind with a purpose to to come into that problem. There's potential for us to go into the world and unlock new and exciting things. There's abundant provision within which we can flourish and help the world to flourish. And yet, most of us don't experience life like that. Most of us don't go to work on Monday morning expecting that. Most of our days aren't filled with the incredible unlocking potential of God's creation. Because as soon as we read these words, you shall not eat of that tree, we know what's going to happen next in the story. As soon as we hear about a boundary, we know that that boundary is going to be crossed because we're human and we know that temptation. And so we understand that this system, this world, this cosmos that God has built, we know it's going to be broken. We know it's going to fall apart. We know that the humans that God puts within it are going to make a mistake and that all of these beautiful purposes are going to be frustrated by that mistake. But we've also seen that God is a God who sees problems and creates the perfect solution for them. And we know, partly from this story, but partly because we know the rest of the story, that God will even see the problem of the broken creation and enter into that creation to solve it. He will send the perfect solution. He will send his son to experience the brokenness of that creation, to die on a tree so that people might be reconnected to the source of life, even though they've walked away. And we have the experience then, if we are followers of Jesus, of receiving that, of being connected once again to the source of life, but also of seeing the work of our hands be redeemed so that what we can do in the world is actually be agents of that redemption wherever we go through what we do, through how we do it, through the way we interact with people, through excellence, through opportunities, through creating new things, we can carry forth that work of God into the world. A purpose of humankind, the potential that we have, and the provision of God all gets turned towards being his presence wherever we go. So we started off asking this question, are we more like a paperclip or a water bottle? And I hope we've answered that question well, that in fact, we are examples of a perfectly designed product. We don't need to be re-engineered. We don't need the second version of us. We don't need to be enhanced or optimized. God designed us perfectly to meet the needs of this world. And when we live into that, when we live into that calling and understand how that plays out in our lives, we're connected to this source of life that is incredible. We're we're, we're able to fulfill 
the purpose he's given to us, to unlock potential in the world and experience his provision wherever we go. And it's because of who Jesus is that we can do that even in a broken world, that we can become agents of redemption in God's creation. So now we have the chance to celebrate this um, ritual that Jesus gave us as one of his last things before he was crucified as a way of reminding us of the solution to the problem of the brokenness of the world. And I just want to point out one interesting thing here is that if you think about Adam in the garden, one of the first things he would do was create produce from the ground, wheat, and maybe he made crackers from it. And he would create fruit and squeeze it into juice. And so these items, the bread that represents the body of Christ, the, the cup that represents the blood of Christ, are themselves deeply connected to the kinds of work that we do in the world. That God chooses these items, the work of our hands, to represent his work, which we eat and becomes part of us, so that then we can be doing his work of redemption in the world. It's this incredible cycle of God's presence in and through us. It's almost too much to even comprehend or fit into our heads, which makes sense because it's how God works in this cosmos. So as we celebrate this, I invite you to think about this as, as the body of Christ, which, which is also the work of your hands, and the, and the blood of Christ, which, which redeems you and restores you to God in all that you do. This morning is what we call Pass the Plate Communion. That means that we're going to distribute these to you. Um, ushers will pass out first the bread. Go ahead and take that and take it whenever you're ready. And then they'll distribute the cup. You can take one of the individual cups. Hold on to it, and the worship team will lead us to take that together. Uh, there are also individual um, kind of self-serve things in the cups if you prefer that style of communion with the wafer and the cup built in. Let me pray for us as we celebrate this. Father God, we are grateful for the way that you've designed this cosmos, for the way that you put humanity within it to serve as your priests in your temple, to work the ground, to keep it, to bring you glory, to unlock potential, all of this incredible stuff that you've given us to fulfill your calling in our lives. May you bring this back to mind. May you help us to walk in these things, to live in these things. And may you help us to, to lean on the presence of Christ within us, understanding that it is your work in the world through us so that we might be faithful, agents of redemption in this world. God, as we celebrate communion, may we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. May that sustain us in our relationship with you and may you guide us as we go out from here into whatever it is that you're calling us to in this world. We love you, God, and we're grateful for the chance to gather together. In Jesus' name, amen.